Mark chapter 11. Open your Bibles there. If you have one of the uh, Welcome Bibles, it's on, it's on page 898. And uh, we're going to be looking at, at verses 1 through 11 today, the, the triumphal entry of Jesus. Um, this, this, is, this passage is, is so important to the story of, uh, of, of Christ's life on earth that it's written in all four of the Gospels. Um, Mark's account, though, is peculiar, pe- peculiar in the way it describes this event. Uh, it is the most public display of Jesus's messiahship. And the only time in Mark's Gospel where there's no evident tension between Jesus and anyone else. And we're going to see that as, 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 we, as we read through this. Um, but it ends totally and completely uneventfully. It, it, it's, it's like building up, building up, building up, and then there's this anticlimactic ending in verse 11. Okay? Now, you're probably familiar with the story of the triumphant entry. You, you probably are familiar with you know, Palm Sunday and, and that we celebrate that. So it the, begins the Passion Week of Jesus. This is now, um, we're in the final week of Jesus's life. And Mark devotes over a third of his gospel to this last week of Jesus's life. It's super important that he would give that much time and effort and energy into that. Mo- the other gospels give a significant amount of time to this last week of Jesus's life. In fact, uh, a lot of, uh, oftentimes they're described as, um, as biographies of Jesus's last life or, or last week of the Passion Week with, a, with an extended introdu- introduction, okay? This is where we're at. This is the, the important, uh, the main thing, okay? Not that the rest of the gospel isn't, but it's all leading us to this place. And here we come to the, to the entry into the city of Jerusalem. And so, um, like I said, you, you're probably familiar. You've probably at least heard of it. Um, but maybe we're, we're not familiar as much with the significance of how Mark describes this, uh, especially compared maybe to the other Gospels. So, um, and then even more so, apart from just, you know, something we celebrate once a year, how does Palm Sunday, how does this triumphant entry here apply to our lives today? How, how do we actually take what's happening here and live according to it? And so that's what we're going to try Uh, to unfold this morning. So I want to read it. It's a shorter passage. I want to pray again, and then uh, then we'll, we'll, we'll dig in. So Mark 11, 1 through 11. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it and some of those standing there said to them, why are you doing, what what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And he went to Jerusalem and into the temple. And after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that 
it gives life. And we pray that it does exactly that today, that you would remind us of who Christ is, that you would help us to see clearly uh, the rule and reign of Jesus in our hearts and lives and in this world, even now, until we wait for his glorious return. We pray that you would encourage us, that you would compel us to greater love and obedience to you through this, uh, your word, by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if someone were to ask you to describe the, the, the kingship of Jesus, what would you say? Right now, what would you say? How would you... Uh, if they were to ask you what his kingdom looked like in the world today, or if, if it was even here, what would you say? How would you describe it? What are the important things that you would want to communicate to someone about Christ's rule in your own heart? How often do you think about those questions? How often do you ask yourself, what's God doing right now? What, what's happening here? Is it just, is it just like a dormant period where, where he came on the cross, he died, he, he's, he set us free from sin, and then we just wait until he returns and we just kind of hang out in between? What's God doing? What's his kingdom look like in the here and now? I think sometimes God's rule in our lives seems uneventful, maybe even non-existent. Because we're, we're so consumed by all of the things that are happening around us that don't really look like the kingdom of God. And in fact, oftentimes look like the opposite of God's kingdom. And, and that that's advancing and growing. But I think sometimes it, it's, it's ultimately because we're not fully aware. It's harder to see what God is doing, but he's still doing something. And we actually, we actually need to trust him that that's happening and we we need eyes spiritual eyes to see what he's doing and so this morning if we want to see and, and participate in the expansion of god's kingdom in the here and now then we need to see the nature of christ's kingship we need to remind ourselves this morning first that christ really is king but then also how how he's king what he's doing and so this morning we're going to kind of focus on two things we, we need to see him as as sovereign king, and we need to see him as peaceful king. And our passage this morning is going to help us do that. So I want to read back through <clears throat> verses 1 through 6. We talk about Jesus as sovereign king. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. <clears throat> as soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. And they untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying a colt, the colt? And they answered them, just as Jesus had said, so they let, him, let them go. Now, in these first six verses, Mark is setting up uh, he, he's setting us up, his readers up for uh, Jesus's entry into Jerusalem in verses 7 through 11. But, but ver verses 1 through 6 are, are more than just background information, right? Uh, Mark is purposeful in how he words these things. He's purposeful in his descriptions. If you remember 
throughout his gospel, Mark is very picky on what he describes specifically. And so when he does, we want to pay attention to that. We want to understand what he's doing. He doesn't often list the names of places in his gospel, but in, in verse 1, he gives four of them. So he's given the readers a, a little foretaste of what's coming. In, in, in Psalm 48, um, it describes Jerusalem as the city of the great king and God's holy mountain, Mount Zion. It's the place where God dwells in his temple. It's, it's the, the, the home, the city of his people. The temple is there, which means God's presence dwells there. It's the center of Israel's religious life and the focal point of their expectations of the coming Messiah. It all comes down to there, to Jerusalem. And it's the final destination of Jesus. It's the place he's been heading to all along. If you remember uh, in the last two chapters, they've been on the road. Where are they going? They're coming to Jerusalem. Mark lets us know here. And this is why. It's the city of the great king. Bethphage means a uh, house of unripe figs. That's just a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's coming next week. It's going to happen later in the chapter. Bethany is the village where Jesus stays overnight uh, during this last week of his life. He doesn't stay in Jerusalem. He stays in, in Bethany, most likely with his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Uh, and he stays there rather than inside Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting that the king would choose to stay somewhere other than the holy city? More on that in a little bit. The Mount of Olives lies just east of Jerusalem, and it peaks about 200 feet higher than the Temple Mount. Okay, so you have this beautiful view overlooking the Temple of God from the, mount of, the top of, of the Mount of Olives. At the base of it is the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to get to that in a little bit when Jesus goes there with his disciples and prays right before he's arrested. In Zechariah, Old Testament prophet, chapter 14, verse 4, tells us that the Mount of Olives is seen as the site of the final judgment. Rabbis associated the Mount of Olives uh, with the coming of the Messiah. So, so there's some significance to these places that Mark is describing here. And these are places we want to kind of remember and keep in our minds. If you have a, a Bible in the back with maps on it, these should be in there uh, talking about Jesus's life and ministry. You should find these there. Get a mental picture of, of these places in your mind because they're real. And this really happened. And I think sometimes we even forget that. We, we can just be like we're, we're, we're sharing, you know, a, a good story. But this is history. And so Mark is setting the backdrop for us of Jesus's final days. But as deliberate as Mark is about what he's saying and doing here, Jesus is all the more deliberate. And if we look closely, we'll see not only this, this foreknowledge, this understanding of what's taking place from Jesus, but we'll see his sovereignty, his leading, his guiding in what's happening here. In verse 1, Jesus sent two disciples into the village. Now, you notice how Mark doesn't say who the disciples are. He doesn't really tell you where the village is. It just says ahead of you. That's not the point for Mark. That's not as important to him as what Jesus is doing. He says, you will find a colt tied there. Verse 4, they went and they found a colt tied there outside the street by the door. Verse 3, he says, if anybody says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. Verse 5, some of those standing there said to them, why are you doing this? 
untying the colt. Verse six, they answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. You see, Jesus knows what he's doing here. His sovereign hand is all over this. There's a purpose and a plan that's being played out here. And it's, he, he's, he's speaking and acting according to the, the predetermined plan of the Father, the plan of redemption, this whole storyline of history that's been moving from the creation of the earth all the way into eternity that we are, I'll say smack dab in the middle of, but I pray it's not another 2,000 years before Jesus comes back. This is all planned by God's sovereign hand. It's not a random uh, a grouping of, of events, and then they get to the cross, and that's, that's the one thing that they have power over. We've seen the, 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 the Pharisees and, and the Herodians plotting to kill Jesus. In some of the other Gospels, we see actual assassination attempts. They're all thwarted. Why? Because Jesus won't die until he lays his own life down. And he won't lay his own life down until the plan of God is fulfilled. His sovereignty is moving them forward into the city of God. This is a sovereign king here. Acts 2.23, Ephesians 1.4, 1 Peter 1.2, Revelations 13, uh, Revelation 13.8. They all speak of this, this divine foreknowledge, this, this pre-planned idea that has been put into place between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's not just a series of random, random events and then the cross. The king, there's, there's kingdom purpose in everything Jesus says and does. Let's talk about the cult for a minute. Here, it's, it's in reference to the foal of a donkey, okay? No one's ever sat on it. That's actually really important because it makes it suitable both for royal and for divine purposes. This is an unspoiled, unbroken animal. It's reserved in this sense for Jesus here because he's not only king, he's Lord. He's royal and divine. He is the king, but he's not like any of Israel's previous kings. They acquired horses. They acquired wives, they acquired riches, all for themselves. Going against God's instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Jesus needs the donkey colt because he's going to fulfill a prophecy with it. Again, according to the sovereign plan of God, and we'll get to that in a second. But when he's done, he's going to send it back. Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his own life as a ransom to acquire not many wives, but the one bride, his church. And he shed his own blood to cleanse her and to present her pure and spotless before the Father and lavish her with immeasurable riches of his grace for all eternity. He's a king who gives, not a king who takes. This is the kind of king who gives the donkey back. But what does he need it for in the first place? Verse 7. They brought the donkey to Jesus, and they threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from fields. 
those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, apart from when he's in a boat, this is the only time in all four gospels where we're told that Jesus is not walking. It's the only time in all four gospels where he's riding. This is a, it's about a two mile hike from where they start to come into to Jerusalem. And, and most pilgrims would make that unless they're physically incapable of doing that. They would make that trek on foot. Jesus is not on foot here. He's riding. So why did Jesus, who has been walking along the road this whole time since chapter 8 and everywhere else, really, right? Why would he decide to ride on a donkey for the final two miles? Well, Zechariah tells us in the Old Testament, chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless cistern. Return to a stronghold, you prisoners who have hope, Today I declare to you that I will restore double to you. Jesus is fulfilling yet another Old Testament prophecy here. One that speaks of the Messiah over and over and over and over and over again. The messages from the Old Testament are being fulfilled in Christ. Those things that speak of the coming King and the Messiah, they're only found to be true in Jesus. He's making a bold statement here that Jerusalem's true and final king has arrived. He comes riding humbly and gently on the foal of a donkey. And he's doing this at the beginning of the week that leads up to the Passover celebration that marks a time when they, they remember the exodus, when God used Moses to deliver the Israelites from the, the oppressive hand of Egypt from slavery in Egypt. And, and they look forward to the new exodus when, when the new deliverer will come and deliver, deliver them once and for all from all of their enemies. Jesus has come to deliver his people. But it's not from Rome. It's from a far greater enemy. But how well did the crowd really understand what's going on here? Okay, we read this in the first pass through, and, and, and it's really easy to think, okay, he's coming in, the crowds are coming out, they're throwing you know, their cloaks down and, and doing all this stuff, singing Hosanna and everything. They know he's king. But then he comes into Jerusalem and to the temple, and what? There's nothing there. So we need to back up a minute. We need to look closely at these verses. You see that they, they threw their clothes, their cloaks uh, on the donkey and, the, and, the, and the, many of them spread their cloaks on the road. This is a, this is a symbol of honor. It's a, sim, a, a, a symbol of submission 
to kings and political leaders. This wasn't out of the ordinary, but it was definitely noticeable. Others spread leafy branches on the road. John's gospel tells us that they were palm branches. This is where we get Palm Sunday from. That's a symbol of Jewish nationalism. It's a symbol of victory and peace. So they're spreading their cloaks. They're spreading these leaves out before the king, the Messiah. At least it seems that way. And in verse 9, they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That, that line comes from Psalm 118. It's a song that was sung, and that they sung uh, uh, at the Passover time, song of thanksgiving in remembrance of the exodus from Egypt and in, in anticipation of the final restoration of Israel in a new exodus under a triumphant Davidic king, a, 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 a descendant of David. Hosanna, the word means save us, please. Okay? But the line they're quoting from Psalm 118 isn't referring to the Messiah as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It's talking about the pilgrim who journeys to Jerusalem. During the Passover, Jerusalem's population would triple in size from all of the pilgrims coming in from all over the world to celebrate the Passover together. And as they came, they would sing this song to the pilgrims who are coming into the city. And another way to word what they're saying here is the pilgrim who comes is blessed in the name of the Lord. Is blessed in God's name. You see, it's not like the city was quiet. And then all of a sudden there's this great procession for Jesus that thousands of people are coming into the city in preparation for the Passover feast and they're singing this song, shouting these blessings as they come. But the people who went ahead of Jesus and those who followed him actually shouted something else as well in verse 10. They said, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now, this isn't found in Psalm. 118. It's not found in any psalm. It alludes to God's covenant with David to establish his royal throne forever through a, a, a descendant of his, through one of his offspring. It has messianic undertones, but the people are shouting this, uh, the people that are shouting this blessing during the beginning of the Passover week. And every year they celebrate the Passover, they are anticipating the coming kingdom of David. And so in that sense, it's not new. They're continuing to do what they do every year. Now, certainly some of those who were shouting Hosanna understood Jesus to be the Messiah, right? He does have the 12 following him. He does have other disciples following him who, who are being made aware of these things. At the very least, the 12 knew this. But no one in that crowd, no one who was shouting those things fully understood the significance of the moment. Some most likely assumed that Jesus was making the pilgrimage just like they were. Maybe, maybe as, as a, a more honored guest. But none of them but Jesus alone understood what was about to take place in the coming week. See, there's a greater enemy to, to be defeated than Rome, and it's revealed by what actually doesn't happen in this scene by what doesn't take place when Jesus comes to Jerusalem. In Psalm 118, it's the priests who are the ones who are supposed to pronounce the blessing over the pilgrims as they come. Where are the priests here? They're nowhere. They're nowhere to be found as Jesus enters. 
Their failure to welcome someone was considered an act of high treason. Who are they committing treason against? God himself, the king. And Lord, they're not welcoming Jesus. They're giving evidence of the corruption of God's people, even in the hearts of those who are supposed to be interceding as priests on their behalf. According to ancient customs, the, a royal dignitary would enter a city and he would be lavishly welcomed and escorted into the city's primary temple where he would offer a sacrifice as a sign of his authority. What does verse 11 say? Jesus isn't just going into Jerusalem. His whole point is to go into the temple. What does he do when he gets there? He looks around, sort of surveying the kingdom as the king. And then what does he do? There's no sacrifice. Turns around and leaves. It's pretty anticlimactic, right? In our minds, this is the king. This is the, the, the Messiah. He's the one that's coming. There should be a greater celebration happening here. He comes into the temple. He looks around at everything, and he leaves, not with a great throng of people who were singing the procession uh, along with him, but with the, the 12. That's it. Walks out with the 12. The only ones who've really been following him from the beginning. It's not only anticlimactic, it's disheartening. Normally, when a, when a royal person entered a city, he would be given a place to stay inside the city, and people would go out of their way to make him feel welcomed. But Jesus isn't offered those things here, so he leaves. He goes outside of the city. The city of God and the temple of God are not welcoming to God in this moment. They've been so corrupted by the people and their sin that there's no place for the Lord himself to stay there. Jesus doesn't make a sacrifice in the temple because even the temple, the place that's supposed to be the dwelling place of God himself, has rejected him. And he would demonstrate his authority, not by making a sacrifice in the temple with an animal, but by giving himself as a sacrifice outside the temple, outside the city, where he would become the sacrifice that brought cleansing to the corrupt and rebellious and sinful people. But we need to come back to the cult for a second because it tells us something about what kind of king Jesus is and how he will take the throne. I want to read Zechariah 9 again, 9 through 12. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is a righteous and victorious. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless cistern. Return to a stronghold, you prisoners who have hope. Today I declare that I will restore double to you. Kings rode into war on horses, not donkeys. 
Donkeys are a symbol of peace. Jesus isn't riding into Jerusalem to make war with Rome. He's riding in on a donkey as the humble shepherd king, righteous and victorious to make peace between God and sinners by releasing them from the prison of sin and death through the new covenant that he will seal with his own blood. This is the king. An author, Sinclair Ferguson, put it this way. He says, think for a moment what Mark's record would convey to those who read it first, the Christians in Rome. No doubt, many of them had seen generals enter Rome in triumph to receive the accolades of victory. How stark the contrast between Roman glory and Jesus's humility must have seemed. How mighty and powerful the sword and political power by contrast with King Jesus, yet we know that his kingdom was established while the glory that was Rome disappeared into oblivion. We know that what Jesus did in Jerusalem established a kingdom which would outlast all the kingdoms of this world and break in pieces every man-centered kingdom which sets itself against it. Jesus had come to take his throne but had committed himself to begin his reign from a cross. This is why, even though this feels anticlimactic, Jesus is triumphantly entering Jerusalem. Not with pomp and circumstance, but with humility and power to set his people free from the, from the oppressive power, not of Rome, but of Satan and sin and death. And nothing will stop him from completing this mission. This is what he came to do. This was in the sovereign plan of the Father, and the Son is accomplishing it, and the Spirit applies it to us who believe. You see, the climax isn't in Jerusalem. The climax is on a hill called Golgotha, outside the city where the king would willingly give up his life by dying a criminal's death on the cross. The climax is through the rolled away stone inside the empty tomb where the king who has risen left the grave cloths laying on the ground once and for all. The climax is in his ascension into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of God on the throne, interceding on behalf of his people until he returns in glory with the angels to judge the world once and for all and usher in all of his people into the eternal city in the kingdom of God. This is what's happening. This is the kingdom for all of those who put their trust in the king. It's for everyone who puts no confidence in themselves, but every confidence in Christ, wholeheartedly depending on him and his life, death, and resurrection to make you right with God. So one of the questions you have to ask and answer this morning is, is Christ your king? He's come to make peace for now. Have you confessed your need for this king and your desire for him to rescue you from your sin and save you from death? He will do it. This is how the kingdom grows between the cross and Christ's return. This is what God is doing in the here and now. We don't just sit around waiting, twiddling our thumbs. It's not a random series of events. We are still in the sovereign plan of God right now. This plan of redemption. as we proclaim the gospel to those around us, that the king triumphantly enters 
into the heart and lives of those who believes and he establishes his rule in their hearts as they believe the good news. And as his disciples were sent by the king into the villages ahead of us, not to go look for donkeys, but to look for the lost and to tell them the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news of the kingdom. This is what Jesus came preaching in Mark chapter one. And this is what he sends us out to preach even now. The king who has reconciled us to God has made us ambassadors of reconciliation. Second Corinthians five. Go read that this week. He sent us out to plead on his behalf with people to be reconciled to God and find peace. God was pleased, pleased to reconcile us to himself by making peace through Christ's blood shed on the cross. That's Colossians 1. Go read that this week. And he continues to spread his reign of peace through the proclamation of the gospel and the belief in the good news. This is what we're doing while we wait. Now, we live in a time that not only feels anticlimactic to the kingdom of God, but, but actually at times feels like we're losing ground. Can you feel that? As a follower of Christ, don't tell me that you haven't been disheartened in the last six months. I won't believe you. And you shouldn't believe me if I tell you that. It's hard. We've, we've covered this a couple weeks ago, right? The road to discipleship is what? Rainbows and butterflies? Suffering, service, death. If you want to follow me, Jesus says, you need to deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. It's not glamorous, but it is glorious. I think it feels anticlimactic. I think it feels disheartening because we, we, we often forget what Christ is doing in the here and now. We look at the gospel in terms of what Jesus did in the past and what he's doing in the future, and, and we fail to see its implications in our lives today. What's he doing through the gospel right now? He's perfecting our faith. This is what Hebrews 12 tells us, right? He's the author of it. He's the finisher of it. He's the perfecter of it. In Philippians, Paul says, I'm convinced that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. What's God doing now? He's perfecting our faith. He's, he's, He's established his rule and reign in our lives through faith in the gospel. And then he takes the gospel and his spirit with his word and he works that good news through every aspect of our lives so that he takes our grasp, slowly loosens that grasp uh, 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 that, that we had on our sin and our old way of life, the stuff that we loved so much before and now realizes dead, dead weight that we're dragging around. And we see Christ's authority over those things more and more as we experience the grace of the gospel in our lives and our hands open up and release the old life and take hold of the new life in Christ. As we grow in our love for him and our obedience to him and as we rest in the fact that we are firmly held in his grasp and no one can take us out of the hand of the sovereign king.
the more we keep the gospel in view, the more we'll, we'll keep the kingdom in view. And the more we keep the kingdom in view, the more we'll keep the king in view. I think sometimes we just, we need to pause wherever we're at in the day and go, this goes away. This is temporary. This is not eternal. Praise God it's not. But eternal is coming. And the more we believe in his sovereign and triumphant victory over Satan, sin, and death at the cross, the more we'll be obedient, we'll be compelled by the love that we've been given, and we'll be obedient to his calling to go and preach the gospel of peace to those around us until he returns. Who in your mind right now are you thinking about that needs to hear this? How are you going to go out this week and be determined not only to know Christ, but to share him with someone else? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the 12th time. Because you believe that his kingdom is at work right here and now, and he is the king. And the more we believe that, the more we go and preach this gospel of peace and reconciliation the more we'll pray for them to believe that this is indeed good news and turn from their sins and find forgiveness and reconciliation with God. You see, we can't just take the news and, and hope that it works on our own. It's the power of God through his word to save his people. Christ really has begun a triumphant reign. He's been ruling and reigning since before the foundation of the earth but he's been ruling and reigning over sin and its power and death since the cross. The cross is necessary, but there's still more to the story and we're part of it. Next time he comes, he won't be riding on a donkey. He'll be riding on a white horse. He'll be coming to make war with the nations and judge them in truth and justice once and for all. He won't return as the humble servant, but as the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. That's happening. That's going to happen. Don't you feel like sometimes we just, we, as God's people, we just get walked over? Hold fast. Your king will fight for you. And in the meantime, He's compelled you in love to actually go to your enemies and preach the good news of rescue so that they too can actually be transferred into his kingdom instead of being prisoners of darkness. Do you want that for them? Until Jesus returns, we're, we're pilgrims. We're pilgrims on the road of discipleship, continuing on to the eternal city. And as we go along the way, Jesus the King has commissioned us to, to make more disciples by preaching the good news of the gospel and teaching people to live by it, to obey all of the things that he's commanded. This King who rescues us from darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of light. And so let's continue on in faith, believing that our sovereign King is continuing to expand his kingdom right now by making peace between God and his people. And let's be determined then to live as Christ's ambassadors who share the gospel. You have to open your mouth and say it. You can, you can live the effects of it, but they need to know it. 
Let's be ambassadors who plead with others to be reconciled to Jesus until the day he comes. Then guess what? We get to triumphantly enter the eternal city. Singing praises to the one who has saved us, who has answered the Hosanna call. And he's brought us safely home. Amen. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that it's not just for 2,000 years ago. We thank you that it's not just for 2,000 years from now. We thank you that it is how we live today. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us grow in our understanding of, in our love for, in our hope in the good news of Jesus Christ. And that you would compel us each and every day even in the midst of endurance, even in the midst of struggle, even in the, the lack of hope that we feel sometimes to look to Jesus and believe that you are reigning sovereignly as the peaceful king right now. And Lord, knowing that you are coming as the warrior king soon, would you help us to love our friends, our family, our enemies enough to share this good news of reconciliation and plead with them to be reconciled to you before there is no more opportunity for them to do so. Would you help us to live as pilgrims on our way to the city, but as citizens of the kingdom of God, foreigners in this land, ambassadors of the king, We pray this for your glory and our good, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.